Hello, everyone. My guest today is Steve Bimel. We talk about his very important work at Japan Craft 21, which is a nonprofit organization in Japan that seeks to support craftsmen and artisans across the country in preserving and sharing their incredible work and skill and knowledge with other artisans across Japan and around the world. I think you'll also find that part of his life mirrors the same trajectory that I'm on. And so it's, it was a real honor to, to speak to someone who trailblazed the path before me. I was thinking about one section of our conversation post mortem, and it was about how to ensure that standards are held and that we build good buildings and good design for the community. I, Was thinking about this and it brought me back to this interesting fun fact that I had learned about UK's Parliament in London. Something that is incredible that was built there is at the very center of Westminster Palace is something called the Central Lobby. And the Central Lobby is a place where ministers from both houses. Can meet. So people from the House of Commons and the House of Lords can meet. And it's also a place where the public, citizens, can go to speak with their representatives. And that is where the term lobbying literally comes from, is because you have citizens who go to the central lobby to express their concerns and their desires to their representatives. And that's such a beautiful idea. And it's such an incredible design that was implemented in real life in the United Kingdom. And it's just an example of how representative government should work. And I think that is a core of what I didn't touch on in this discussion, but I wish I had thought up. And so I wanted to bring it up here in the introduction. In government, of course, the ideal is to have competent leaders. But no matter how smart you are, you cannot be detached from the people you represent, from your constituents. And I think that applies to architecture. You can't have architects that design from an ivory tower without speaking to what people need on the ground. People have an inherent understanding of what beauty is. Whether it's in Japan or if it's in the United States, people don't want. To live in skyscraper apartment buildings where there's where you can't touch grass or you can hardly see the mountains because other buildings are in the way or the echoes of sirens reach your door, reach your windows every night and it disturbs your peace and quiet. The idea of the lobby suggests to me. That if we had a system in place where those with the skills to build, all the way from the carpenter to the contractor to the architect to the city planner to the mayor, does not lose touch with the needs of the citizenry, of the people, the local people who actually live in the city, then I think we have a chance of creating beautiful spaces. 
people become disgruntled with the idea of lobbying today because it's synonymous with those who have the most money can then use their resources to influence politicians to change laws in their favor. And I understand that. But lobbying in the purest sense from the original definition in which representatives are in constant dialogue with their citizens, that is an answer to a lot of the problems we have today in this ugly modern world. I hope you enjoyed that interesting tidbit about design. As a final reminder, if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, please consider subscribing to Substack. It is free to subscribe. And if you are so willing, you can support me for $5 a month when you sign up. Thanks again, and please enjoy this conversation with Steve Bymel. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Steve Bymel, for for joining today. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an honor actually to be able to speak with you because uh, I did my research prior to the conversation and uh, I've learned about you know all the things that you've done and it's uh, it's really really wonderful. So just for our listeners to to learn more about you quickly, he uh, Steve was the founder of Spirit Travel and Tours uh, in the early 1990s, and also he was the publisher for the Kyoto Diary, which was which which he ran. And uh, he's also now the editor-in-chief at japanlivingarts.com. And what his main focus is currently is Japan Craft 21, which is a really incredible nonprofit organization behind restoring Japanese traditional crafts around the world, or sp- spreading them around the world, but uh, really re- revitalizing the, the skills behind the craft. And Japan Craft 21's main project is the Japan Traditional Craft Revitalization Contest. And so we'll get into that and just how cool that is. I guess quickly to, for you to learn a little bit about me is I'm I'm an American who has come to Japan, who's been really gripped by the Japanese architecture and has also, like you, have, have seen the, the craftsmanship disappear over time. And uh, I, I feel this need to to try to, to do what I can to to protect protect it because I think it's beautiful and it's worthy of protection. So um, I have this podcast to speak with different experts in the field. And eventually I also want to start a business to in this kind of, kind of direction. So that's just a little bit about me and why I'm talking to you today. So thanks again for coming on. Sure. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Jared, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I think the first thing is just to go straight into the the big thing about you uh, and about Japan Craft 21. So could you tell me about, maybe you can tell me a bit about the history of Japanese crafts and maybe a little bit of the history of the, of its gradual disappearance. And you can talk to me about how this formed the mission of, of what you're doing today. Sure. Japanese crafts go back, some of them go back 12,000 years seven, eight, nine thousand years. One of the two oldest uh, ceramics traditions in the world is in Japan, and it may also have been simultaneously in, in China, but going back to about 
10,000 BC, 11,000 BC. So we're we're going back a long way in ceramics and lacquerware, lacquer in the, in the about 7,000 BC, um, basket making, uh, also, you know, thousands of years BC. So this is this is something that is just part of the Japanese culture, unlike many cultures in the world, which have really lost their craft traditions, over, especially over the past hundred years. Japan, up until recently, has been able to maintain their craft craft traditions. We are looking at a a powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse of craftsmanship. Now, if you when I speak of craftsmanship. I'm specifically referring to master craftsmanship, and those are crafts which have been passed down for generation, generation, hundreds, even thousands of years, and refined and refined and improved upon and improved upon and improved upon to the point where you have these are stellar crafts, and we have these stellar master crafts all over the world. But I venture to say is if you take most of the remaining master crafts in the world and put them in one hand japan will have more than most if not all the world put together so we're talking about you know i've said 1300 crafts in japan in the night about 1980 there were 300,000 master craftsmen craftspeople in japan by 2028 it looks like that figure is going to be about 25,000 that's a 92 percent evaporation rate in 40 years and so what's what that says to me is the world's last great powerhouse of craftsmanship, which is the how should I say this is the this is the pinnacle of the human expression with the hand, with the heart, with the soul, making things for our daily lives. This is the pinnacle of human expression. And it's going to be all it's mostly going to be gone. This is uh, within five years. So unlike most people so far, and I'm, I'm hoping that this will change, but I think I'm the only one on the rooftop screaming at the top of my lungs, fire, fire. There's a, it's, a, it's not just, oh, this is in danger. This is, this is in danger. That's in danger. Oh, what should we do about this and that? This is, this is a massive fire. This is like the, the, the rainforest is on fire. So it has come to that critical point. The Japan Traditional Crafts Renovation um, Revitalization Contest that started quite recently, just 2021. Just 21, and that we just closed our um, the entry period for our third annual contest. So we just have all of our whole lots of lots of lots of wonderful applicants have just yesterday. We just closed the it was the last day of applications, and so we're going to start processing them now. So yes, this is our third year. Yeah, what you're doing is. We need people like you who are who feel a sense of urgency because i think what happens is people some people um they they see the how how dire the situation is but they they don't do anything about it and so there's like a you know a minority of people who really feel a sense of urgency and they're the ones who take action and and so you've you've helped to found uh, japan craft 21 and and you're doing this contest and i think it's wonderful and i hope that the podcast can work in a tiny way to try to help to to spread the word and I hope it works uh, in a big way to spread the word. <laughs> yeah, because I think I think it's so so incredible. So, 
so you said the artists do they do they apply for the contest themselves or do they get nominated by master craftsmen how does the application work and maybe you could tell me also about how it's grown in the past three years okay the application process is uh it's open to see we make a distinction between master craft craft artists and master craft artisans and we support all of them but for our contest because master craft artists who are making one-of-a-kind pieces just amazing one-of-a-kind um craft pieces uh these people are artists they they have and there's quite a support group for artists in the world and you know their galleries their museums their people who are doing sales you know it's 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 quite and there's a lot of branding and promotion of that for the artisans who are the huge mass of people these are the these are the tens of thousands of people that are doing this work these are people that are not producing one of a kind pieces they're producing multiple versions or iterations of the, actually not necessarily multiple iterations but multiple pieces of the same the same thing or of a few things so this is these are th people making things for our daily lives these are people who are making um you know all kinds of things from lacquer and ceramics and these are not as i said not one of a kind pieces these are the people that really need our support and this is where it's all disappearing and so when so we use the word master artisan so to answer your question these people will they apply to the contest and we have a we have a um a system of it's the contest is open to any craftsperson and we have certain criteria of course but any craftsperson fills the criteria we also have we ask a number of of um people who are active in the in the field in the in the field of arts and craftsmanship and you know uh people who have who have influence and who have large networks and to we ask them to not not necessarily to nominate but to suggest people it's a kind of a nomination and then we we once we receive those uh we contact the people whom they're they're suggesting and it's all done anonymously nobody knows who's are being nominated by and so we have that and we also have uh the um anyone else who's a craftsperson can join so when they're judged nobody knows that Mr X or Miss X was recommended by someone they have to they have to be able to stand on their own feet their own their own the quality of their own work and their own application that's really a wonderful process of of the nomination that's that's unique and it's it provides a sense of like mutual respect like you you really you get this honor from one of your mentors or something like this I think that's uh a really wonderful thing so it's quite an, I think an honor for these people one one thing that came to mind when you were talking about these master artisans is the the Japan the Japanese movement of minge yes which which is it was founded by Soetsu Yanagi yeah and he's a name that I think probably most Westerners don't know about but this guy is so he was so inspirational and uh, such a powerful like beautiful writer and uh, I, I I read I remember reading a, a few chapters of his book and it's it's a he's a I think largely thanks to him this this work that you're doing the of trying to preserve the crafts Japan has been able to sustain itself as you said like it's Japan's 
still a country of craftspeople, even though it's declining in uh, really quite rapidly. So Tsuyanagi was a pioneer who really helped to, to save these people and their craft. Yes, Yanagi was a, a huge inspiration for me, you know, having and um, I was lucky enough to have been exposed to him early in my life. So it helped to inform my life or direct my life. But um, he's uh, he was. So, yes, in many ways, in many, many ways, what we're doing and, and our approach is is a direct influence of so so uh, Yanagi Soetsu. Yeah. One of those things would be that we focus on functional crafts and uh, functional wear, functional crafts, the beauty of you through use, yo no be. So this is something mm -hmm. that we are uh, we feel strongly about, and for a couple of reasons, I think the in terms of a revitalization, uh, you have art let's say non-functional art is everywhere in the world it's everywhere and there's very little functional craftsmanship left you know high functional high uh, master functional craftsmanship left and most of it's here so that i feel like um, we feel that that is japan's strong suit and rather than trying to compete with every artist in every country in the world we just strengthen work to revitalize what is already here what is already strong and that is mm. just this functional beautiful functional craftsmanship it reminds me of his book which was the beauty of everyday things and i think one way i kind of think about it is like yeah, as you said there's the artists who build non-functional pieces of, of beautiful things but then there's also these artisans who the thing that's I think makes them so unique is that they're humble. They they're not creating something spectacular for you to look at and just enjoy. They're creating small things that you use that you don't think about, but you have a deep connection with. Like maybe you have a deep connection with this mug that was handcrafted and you use it every day and you love it. And like I think maybe a, a more e an easy way to explain it is um, I think recently there's been a especially in, I guess, the turn of the century, like a boom of of star architects, and they build these gigantic, crazy buildings um, because they believe it's their art. They think they think it's really beautiful. And so it's quite crazy, this art, They're this, these buildings. I think Kyoto Station might be an example of, of that, <laughs> where someone thought that this was interesting and, and crazy. They, they treated it like a piece of art. But um, what really makes Kyoto special is are the craftsmen who who build the humble small buildings and they're not they're not there to be looked at they're there to just to be used and to be lived in and i think it's much more beautiful actually one of our other projects <clears throat> is the revitalization of traditional architecture in kyoto and so when we found out that the 100,000 um, machia townhouses which were built in kyoto up until the war, up until uh, only 40,000 are left and they're being torn down every day. When we really got that, um, I'm working with we, one of my great partners in this colleagues is a fifth generation uh, traditional carpenter. And he has his own uh, Komoten 
um, construction company, traditional construction company. And so, you know, we in our in our crazy, enthusiastic, wild dream is let's just build, keep start building matcha everywhere. And um, and this was five years ago. We were talking about this, and, and you know, we were just so excited. Yes, let's build matcha. Let's build matcha. Let's be the leaders in this. And you know, you people can have these beautiful, authentic houses with modern conveniences inside of them with, that are ec ecologically sound, with cool in the summer and warm in the winter. All those things that we can do in a traditional building. Uh, they don't have to be dark, and you know, whatever. They, and we had this great idea, and then. Then it just hit us that there are no no young carpenters that can do this work anymore. Young carpenters are not taught this. Young plasterers are not taught how to make tsuchikabe, you know, the uh, mm. mud mud bamboo walls. So we started a school three years ago. We started four years ago. We started a school and we train working young carpenters to do joinery. It's an, it's an eighteen month class. We teach young plasters to do tsuchikabe walls and we th we've been teaching young gardeners to do advanced garden techniques which they're not learning in their you know nowadays so uh we've so far we've had 20 25 graduates and they're we pay for their tuition we pay for the the teachers honorariums the materials the the place to work the electricity everything it's all free yeah, I wanted to talk to you about this because this is also uh, something that is very, that really touched me deeply. It's the Shin Matsuya Juku, yeah. a free of charge school in Kyoto. And you teach wood joinery and all all these different skills to the carpenters. I actually was, was curious about the partner. So you said his name is Tomohiro Naito. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Tell me more about him. Because I think, I guess from, from what I see is a lot of foreigners who come to Japan, whether they're tourists or they're expats or, you know, they live here full time, they're citizens, whatever, they they love this stuff. They they really they really find the traditional homes to be beautiful. I think it's just kind of because they, they just think it's interesting and, and unique. But then I think some Japanese people, they tend to maybe they think it's normal. And so they look they look past it. Or something that's, I think, really more common is that a lot of Japanese people, they really prefer new things because they perceive these old homes that might be dark and not renovated to be uncomfortable or a symbol of of poverty or, or a tradition and, and they want something new and, and so they go to a big apartment complex um but this guy as you said Tomohiro Naito like what makes him such a spectacular person and, and how he he came to be a part of this an important leader in the Machia renovation space well he has several things going for First of all, he's a master carpenter. Second, he's he has uh, he's part of the community. He's part of the the community. He's right in the center of this 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 community of of Kyoto, the you know the, the downtown area. Uh, third, he's totally passionate about this. He so completely um, understands and feels and knows the beauty in the integrity of this extraordinary building tradition. It's, uh, you know, where buildings, they last forever. They just, I mean, you know, with, within reason, but they, you know, the, a 30 year old house, old, a 30 year old house, a modern house in Japan is, is falling apart. A 100 year old house in Japan, traditional house 
can be renovated and last for another hundred years. So it's it's you know they last for a long time. They're beautiful. If you, if you look at if you look at a house, a, a two hundred year old Japanese house that has been maintained with you know it has been maintained so it's in it's in proper condition without any even without any kind of additional uh, tarting up it's just just a traditional house that is in clean good working condition it's really exquisite and if you compare that to a 30 or 40 year old house it's just like the, a 30 or 40 year old house just looks like it's it's like wearing clothes that's you know 30 or 40 years ago it just it's out of style it looks it looks awkward it looks it looks it doesn't it doesn't uh, resonate so there's a traditional beauty that lasts that people recognize and um, a lot of japanese people recognize the beauty of that but up until now the only alternative for people was were, was to buy an old house and renovate it, which number one takes a long time. Number two, it takes a lot of money, and um, you know that, that's a lot, a lot to ask for of most people. They don't have the time, the wherewithal to do it. So we've, we want to. What we are doing, and we've just started, is we are building brand new, authentic matchar. We're 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 now about. A third of the way through building the first matcha, authentic matcha, in 90 years, and it has all the joinery, all the all the beautiful woodworking, plus things like some skylights, some some uh, little areas where to let light in, small inner verandas, in inner um, light areas. Maybe we would we would call them the, an open kitchen which was like a kitchen living area where the family could gather in, in, a, in a really beautiful room and not and just making it very livable and you know with with restrooms on the second floor which is something that you never see in an old house yes that's uh, right and also um ecologically very sound we ha you know we have a small uh, prototype building and we run the air conditioning and the heating 24 hours a day, all year round. And because the building is so well insulated and so um, properly placed in terms of where the sun is and where the wind comes, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, our bill is just, is almost, is, is practically free. It's just, it's so low. And you know, we, we take advantage of air being moved from one room to another room. The, the warm air in one room could be moved to another room to to kickstart the, the, the heat in, in a room. So there are a lot of little things that we, we are doing. And so for the most Japanese people to think of living in an old, dusty, dirty, dark house, that's going to cost you, it's going to cost you a, a lot of money and a lot of headache. It's just not appealing. So we're hoping to appeal to people who don't actually have a lot of baggage about the way the old buildings are, or there are people willing to let go of that and just come into a gorgeous space to, to smell the smell of cedar. It's just amazing just mm. to be in that, that environment. I would love to see it someday and, or maybe see future projects that you and your, your young carpenters make, because I think it's, it's exactly what, what needs to happen. And I, I lived in Kyoto from 2016 to 2019 uh, under the JET program as an English teacher. When I was there, this is very recent, but 
even then I had this intuition that there was something wrong with what was going on in the city. Cause I would go to the very beautiful districts of Higashiyama or to, uh, I guess, um, Arashiyama as well. And then just north of me where I was living was the Nishijin area. And there was a lot of really great textile people living in these machia. And I had a friend who had renovated a cafe and another one who had renovated a machia into a guest house. And so I saw these really great people doing some amazing things to preserve the architecture. But then I lived in a really terribly tall and ugly UR housing building. And I saw these everywhere throughout the uh, throughout the city. And it, it felt strange. Like, why? Why, why are these here? This uh, this is not how I imagine Kyoto to look like. And so maybe could you tell me about your life? Because you lived in Kyoto for quite a while. And I'm a young person, so I never had the experience of of seeing Kyoto. Like, what was the, um, could you tell me about the trans- transformation of the city in your, in your lifetime? Sure. I started living or visiting Kyoto a lot about 30 years ago. And I've been living here for... 18 years straight, but I was here about half a year uh, for about the 15 years prior to that. And then, but the first time I visited Kyoto was, I think it was uh, 1971, 1972. And it's actually New Year's 1972. And I spent a week here just by myself walking around. And there were just street after street after street after street of Machia. That's all there were was just so you just went from neighborhood to the neighborhood and it was it was magical. And 60, 70 years ago, Kyoto was considered one of the 10 most beautiful cities in the world. And it's not anymore, of course, because of the there's still absolutely beautiful parts of Kyoto, but the city as a whole has become has become kind of a cacophony of of loud loud buildings, ugly buildings, concrete. You know, and concrete can be beautiful. I'm not speaking against concrete, but when it's it's done in the way it's it it has been done, it's it's oppressive and it's it's gray and it's. So anyway, yeah, yeah it doesn't. It's not a lot of those concrete buildings are not built at the human scale, right. and that's that's a big problem. Yeah, I mean. Tadao Ando can make a concrete building that that's 30, 40, 50 years later, it's still really beautiful. Ando's buildings from the 80s are found still beautiful to this day. But um it just gradually happened. You know, I don't I don't know how to approach this, and maybe you and maybe one of your listeners who are listening to this can give me some advice about this. But when I look at this. I think, you know, I think of aesthetics and, you know, there are places in the world which which have building codes which don't allow ugly buildings. But, you know, and that's, you know, and, and some people say, well, that's that's cringing on our freedom. And so if it's taken to an extreme, there are places where where uh, the building codes only permit certain certain styles of architecture you know and I, I think there has to be something here there has to be some kind of a guideline and there they they did introduce guidelines a few years ago but they were very very minimum minimal but it was it was a beginning you know certain kinds of signage can't be in the downtown area and you and if you build a tall building you have to have at least the 
uh, a reference to a Japanese roof at the top. I mean, you know, little things like that, which which are helping a little bit. But and there are certain heights restrictions now in certain places. But um, generally speaking, you know, there's no mentorship of of style, design, and aesthetics. You know, there are certain things that if you would do in, let's say, if you were to build a certain building in in some other countries in the world, the the general populace would be in an uproar to be able to do such a thing. But in Kyoto, you could pretty much build whatever you want, and you could just go to the extremes of ugliness if you want, and no one's going to stop you. And and so we're left with that. It's like you know, the Kyoto Tower is an example. Actually, at the time, there was a lot of reaction to it, and it's still one of a, a very ugly, uh, an ugly structure in a in a city in a twelve hundred year old city, and of course the 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 train station across the street and so many of the buildings. It's it's not the best we can do, by any means. Yeah, yeah, it's a very tough question to ask. I'm not sure I have the answer, but. Uh... I actually did the re some research when I was in graduate school. I did a, a dissertation on on cultural landscapes, and I compared Japan to Switzerland because that's where I did my graduate studies. And uh, I thought Switzerland did an amazing job of maintaining their cultural landscape and doing a really good job of blending the built environment with the natural environment. And like there were a couple of guidelines that I came up with that I thought were interesting and worthwhile, but. Um, I mean, I think you're right. Like a lot of it comes down to some kind of um, communal process where neighbors discuss what they want. And that can be a great thing because maybe some bureaucrat wants to build an ugly building <laughs> like the uh, Kyoto City Hall. That new thing is terrible. But um, and so maybe citizens, they can come together and reject it. Oh, you mean the, the addition behind it? Yeah, the addition. Um, but then. The other problem with that is that sometimes um, citizens they don't uh, they let go of their civic responsibility to to manage the city and then you know like small individuals end up it's like an encroachment over time and they gradually build things that are not adherent to the regional style they don't use local materials etc. So yeah, it's it's really it's tough you know that's to be some kind of balance between neighbors coming to a consensus with each other but then also some kind of standard that you have to set no matter what so yeah it's a tough one but it's i think i think one thing that's great is what you're doing is that you are providing an example of a traditional building that can be profitable and that can be comfortable and if people can see the example with their own eyes then maybe you know people's minds will change and they'll say okay let's 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 try this out we had an open house a few years ago, before we, about five years ago, because uh, we have this beautiful showroom of Machia showroom that uh, Naito-san built a few years ago. And a lot of people came and, and you know, people who are you know, youngish people in their, you know, in their 40s, 30s, 40s, ready to buy a house. And they, they love the idea of living in a Machia, but it's just the whole idea of the cost of buying, renovating, and living in, in, in an old place for a year while it's being renovated. You know, it's, it's most people can't afford that. So building a new house, building something new is not only um, faster, but it's cheaper. And we've came up with the, the concept of Machia Town, 
where you where we take the equivalent of a parking lot and we build 10 machia there and because there are it's built at the same time we get economies of scale we can bring the price down by 20 to 30 percent so that can make them more affordable but you know i was doing you know that uh, there's a big thing about the tokonoma and people saying well um you know we we people don't want to put a tokonoma in a house because it adds to the cost of the house and so i did a i did a um a quick and dirty calculation and just adding a tokonoma to the house the the monthly payment would it's just going to be like the the cost of a cup of coffee over 30 years it's nothing hmm. so um, but the but having a tokonoma in your house which is really the the seat or the foundation of so much of Japanese culture, the tokonoma alko, having a place where there's a scroll, having a place where you could put a flower arrangement. That's that's like the, the core of the culture. And just to say, well, for the cup of, price of a cup of coffee, I'm not going to have that. I don't think people think it through. Hmm. They don't think it through. And so we're trying to educate people how e much easier it is than they think. You know Yoshihiro Takeshita? He's the. Um, yeah, I know of him. I we haven't met, but I know how. And I he worked with um, with Mark Keen, quite. A, Mark Keen worked with him quite a bit. Mark Keen. Okay, I'll have to research Mark Keen. Mark Keen is a is a uh, a landscape arc and site design architect, landscape architect who's working in Japan. He's been here many many years, and he's he's actually one of the the pioneers in trying to bring awareness to the um what has happened to Kyoto over the past 50 years mm -hmm. bring awareness and try and turn that around oh wonderful wonderful I'd love to speak with him and uh but I, I the reason why I brought up Yoshihiro Takeshita is because uh, I went to the Minka summit this year which is a really fun event where people who are interested in Japanese architecture come together and he was the keynote speaker and he was describing his process of renovating Kominka. And his what he said really resonated with what you said. He said that I do a lot of changes to the to the building to make sure that it's that it's comfortable and modern. And I change the style quite a lot. But there's one thing I don't change, and to me it's sacred, and it's the the shrine that's often at the roof, kind of on the ceiling of the Kominka. It's a place where like the farmers would go to to give their thanks. To the gods for harvest so it was a, it's a sacred space and he said like that's the one thing that i will refuse to touch when it comes to kominka restoration and so it's it's quite cool to see that echoed in in exactly what you're doing too i guess this last question i kind of wanted to tie it all together which is that there's things that happen in life that really that grip you for un, kind of mysterious reasons like for me i remember going to university not being sure what to do i thought i kind of flirted with the idea of architecture i ended up not doing it which i regret but um no matter what happened throughout my like i guess 10 years now of since since going to university to my life now is like, architecture and design and, and japanese design it keeps kind of like coming back to me and it kind of for some undescribed undescribable reason and so i was wondering if if there's anything any through line that you can draw through your life into like what drew you to this work that you're doing now well like yourself I've always been interested in architecture I that was one of my early dreams was to become an architect 
I think what what it you know I came from Los Angeles and I came in 1971 and um I often use this the I often tell about the word speak about the word Melmac I'm not you you're probably too young to know what Melmac is Melmac is the, it's dinnerware made out of plastic and it would come in in all kinds of colors like aqua and orange and so people would have a whole set of these dishes called melmac and so i i like to think of the i was coming from the world of melmac i came from the world of melmac where people in the in the 60s and, and 50s 60s and 70s were using melmac for their everyday their dishes and i came to japan and everything was made by hand and i was living in a house with ceramics and every every there were sets of five of every everything you could possibly imagine every you know you had hagi where you had had um had blue and white had um porcelain had just uh some shino ware so, so all kinds of ceramics had lacquerware had little tools made out of bamboo little cutters and brushes and um the floors were tatami the the, the uh the doors were fusuma washi I slept on a futon and I just felt like it was in heaven. It was just the most, everything was made by hand and everything touched me. Everything was made by people. And so it was such an extraordinary contrast to the Melmac world of Los Angeles in 1971 that I, it changed me forever. And I, even when I was 23 years old and I was, I was teaching English in, you know, the, the, our program had, 15 people in it and you know that that was the that was about 20 years before the jet program where you have they have thousands of people there are 15 people and, and i was in this living in sendai and i just fell in love with 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 everything it was everything was so consciously beautifully made with focus and with attention and with with brilliance and so that's that's i just how that's how i got into it you know, having been brought up in a house similar to the houses that they're building, you know, modern houses in Japan, which you know they're flimsy, they're they're not well made. And I was brought up in a in a modern American house. That was my experience. It's going from like one end to the the end of one extreme to another. Mm. Yeah, feeling the contrast, and I guess you just coming into contact with such beauty. It's it's just really describes you, right? It's, it's kind of um, natural. It's a natural feeling to feel. Yeah, well, well thank you so much um, for your time. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. It's it's really quite an inspiration for me and I think many people out there. So uh, maybe could you uh, let people know more about where people could go to learn more about your work? And especially for Japancraft 21, I know that uh, you accept donations. And I think, I think it's great. I think if people listen to this and they, they feel compelled to, I think they should because it goes to supporting the competition and it goes to supporting these architects who are trying to learn these old crafts. So yeah, like, can you provide some resources for, for us? Sure. Sure. We have our website, japancraft21.com. Just all one word, japancraft21, written as a number, 21.com. We are now supporting 
we have we have several pros. We have our Juku. We have our school for training of craftspeople. We have our contest, and our contest winners become members of what we call our our craft leader council. And so we now have 20 craft leaders in this group from all different crafts. These are all the finalists from our, our previous contests. In our third year, we will add, this year we're adding 10 more. So these are 20, 30, will be certainly 30 people. And we we once they get into this group, we do our best to support them, to promote them. And so we we just took eight eight of these people and we had a three-hour meeting with Ken Gokuma and his oh, architects. Wow. To, in order to see ways that they could possibly incorporate the crafts of our people into their into some international construction, we have a we have um, then our other pro program is our apprentice program. A big problem in Japan is old master craftspeople can't afford to to pay living expenses for their apprentice for apprentices and young people who want to be apprentices can't afford to do that for free they have to pay for their living so we provide a stipend for living stipends so allowing apprentices to work to study full-time with masters and then this year we, we we have funding so far for nine apprentices for example in the textile industry in the japanese dyeing industry um, the kimono industry is almost gone. It is almost it's it's just the fragment is being is holding on by literally by threads. And we um we su we support the work of 10 age aged dyers in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we have three apprentices who go to them every day and they, they spend the day and they learn everything they can from these 10 aging dyers who some of them are a couple some of them are actually retired already and so we have these three extraordinary apprentices who don't who can carry on the work of these great masters so that so we're doing it that we have we're about ready to have an apprentice in sashimono and fine woodworking we, we're going to have three apprentices for fine uh, wood furniture making so those are our programs the the contest the school and the the apprentice program and so if people want to give to this, they can, it's it's vital work and the money goes to the place where it should go, it goes to the people who need it. Okay, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, we are, I'll put all the resources in the show notes with, with all the links so people can check it out. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I, pro I probably, yeah, see, yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, what, what am I trying to say? Like, um, I don't, uh, I think one problem with young people like myself is that we haven't seen Japan at its height, or I don't know about that. But you know, when there was a lot of craft work, and um, all I know is now, which is not so much. And so I, I don't have the perspective of understanding the decline, the historical decline. And so mm -hmm. I don't have as much of a sense of urgency as as you might. And so I think that needs to change. So what you're doing is great. Um, and um, hopefully I can update you on the, the work that I'm trying to do in the future here. And I'm, I'm currently based in Kobe and trying to support the local people here through running tours and experiences. And and uh, hopefully I can, you know, share the share the work of, of local people with tourists, but then also 
encourage young people to take up the craft because hope you know hope i want it to be profitable for them too so so thank you so much and uh hopefully we can we can keep in touch i can let you know how things are going on my side and, and i i would love to to see to see the work that you that you do too and in, in, in kyoto so well please come to kyoto i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing you here thank you so much oh it's been a pleasure jerry thank you so much